the government uses this one message to arrest and imprison him for multiple years. It was really core religious speech that was being criminalized here. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today we'll be discussing religious prisoners of conscience in Kazakhstan. In particular, we'll be talking about the imprisonment of a group of men who received multi-year prison sentences for exchanging religious publications and discussing Islam in a WhatsApp group. Kazakh authorities arrested eight men in late 2018 on various terrorism and incitement-related charges after obtaining and analyzing the contents of their conversations. USERF, uh, for our purposes, has reported on conditions uh, of religious freedom of belief in Kazakhstan for nearly 10 years now, and we've recommended the country for placement on the uh, State Department's special watch list. Uh, in USERF's 2022 annual report released uh, just in April. In recent years, the government of Kazakhstan has engaged directly with the US government, including uh, the State Department and USERF, about possible religious freedom reforms, but it continues to severely limit this right through its 2011 law called On Religious Activity and Religious Associations. Now, in 2021, there were a total of 128 administrative cases for religion-related offenses, such as meeting for worship or distributing religious texts without authorization. And late last year, the government adopted uh, new amendments to its religion law that seemed likely to further uh, restrict religious activity. USERF also regularly documents the cases of individuals who've been imprisoned, detained, and disappeared, among many other things, through its uh, Freedom of Religion or Belief Victims List, where there are currently 10 Sunni Muslims imprisoned in Kazakhstan related to their religious activities. We'll be discussing the case of five of those individuals still in prison today for discussing their religious beliefs over a messaging app, as I said earlier. We're fortunate to be joined today by Matthew Schaff and Adam Ledmott, who are respectively the Advocacy Director and Legal Officer at Freedom Now, an organization working to end arbitrary detention and other human rights abuses. Freedom Now has been covering this case and advocating for the WhatsApp group members for several years now. Matt and Adam, welcome to USERF Spotlight. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. Well, great to have you, as I uh, said. For, our, for the benefit of our audience, it'd be great if you could give an overview of the WhatsApp prisoners case and what happened and why were these men prosecuted for their participation in an online group discussion about Islam? Thanks, Dwight. I'd be happy to. So this whole case, as you mentioned, centers around a WhatsApp group. And this group was created in 2013 by a Kazakhstani man named Bolotbek Nergaliev. Bolikbek had created this group for the purpose of sharing religious texts and for some discussion of Islam. And over the course of a couple of years, this group grew fairly large to about 170 members. And over the years, 
thousands of messages were sent in this group. So it was a fairly active messaging group. Members of this group came from all around Kazakhstan. And because of how word of this group spread, most of these men didn't know one another. Um, they had never met in person. Um, and so the group was just a collection of people who were getting together to learn um, and receive Islamic uh, texts. So, you know, although there was some discussion, the vast majority of the messages that were sent in this group were copies of religious texts or quotes from the Quran or other religious scholars. So all that was really going on in this group was sharing religious materials and discussion of some religious topics. There wasn't really anything nefarious happening here. So it's this group that kicks off this entire case. And sometime in the summer of 2018, Kazakhstan National Security Services learn of this group. And by October 2018, the government decides to arrest nine members of this group. Aside from Bolotbek, uh, who is the group's founder, who you might expect the government to target, the government seemingly chose the other eight members that they were going to arrest at random. There wasn't much rhyme or reason for why the government arrested one of these guys over anyone else in the group. So I think, you know, some cases that illustrate that one of the guys arrested, Nazim Abdurkmanov, he only ever sent one message in the group. And to kind of spoil, you know, where we're going, the government uses this one message to arrest and imprison him for multiple years. So the fact that Nazim was arrested is pretty excessive. Um, one of the other men arrested, Samada Dilov, he'd only joined the group 12 days before the group was shut down. But I think what's most interesting about Samat's case, you know, aside from him being in the group for less than two weeks, is that he was the very last guy arrested. And he had heard about the arrest of the other eight men and decided to go to the police to tell the authorities that there was nothing bad happening in the group, that there must have been some misunderstanding, that the men were just sharing religious texts and talking about them. And then what did the authorities decide to do in response to hearing this information? They decided to arrest Samat and charge him along with the other eight that they had already arrested. So the authorities seem to be picking these guys more to make an example of them than anything else. So in 2019, the government ultimately convicts all nine group members of intentionally inciting religious discord, uh, which is a crime under 170, 174 of the criminal code. And then the government uh, convicted four members of an additional charge of distributing propaganda of terrorism. Uh, and that's criminalized under Article 256 of the Criminal Code. All of these men received between five and eight year sentences just for their participation in this group. And the court's judgment against these against the group members, I would say, is in, was entirely baseless. Um, there, there's a lot wrong with the trial and the government's case, and I, I won't go over all of it. But I think the bottom line is that none of the defendants WhatsApp messages that were cited either in the indictment or at trial revealed any intent to incite discord or promote propaganda for terrorism. All of the messages cited by the government, in fact, uh, were either excerpts or paraphrases of the Quran or other religious texts. And so it was really core religious speech that was being criminalized here. The government's main argument at trial uh, was that um, their own expert witnesses claimed that these messages showed signs of incitement and propaganda. Um, and the court just took this expert testimony at face value. 
It didn't review any of the messages in detail, uh, and it didn't consider the defense evidence, uh, which included witnesses who found that there was no incitement or propaganda. So it's pretty clear to us from the messages and from the selection of the group members that the government's goal was to disband peaceful religious um, groups rather than to tackle genuine extremism or social discord. So I, I think that gives a good overview of, of what happened to these guys. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And, and as you know, it's not uncommon to see governments throughout the region target individuals uh, on charges alleging extremism or terrorism, uh, but with no grounds or evidence of a crime other than a person's peaceful religious activity. Adam, let me follow up again with you here. How do you assess legislation in Kazakhstan that places restrictions on religious literature or that deals with extreme uh, extremism? And how might enforcement of those laws potentially lead to religious freedom violations per se? Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting question um, because most of the legislation you mentioned there is facially neutral, I guess, in the sense that it doesn't explicitly refer to or target specific religions. Um, so you mentioned the restrictions on religious literature. Those are part of a pretty large set of administrative regulations that apply to all religious groups in Kazakhstan. So for example, all religious groups must be registered with the government before operating. Uh, they have to submit religious materials for some pre-approval before they're disseminated to the public. Uh, there's also regulations on things like selling religious literature. Uh, there are regulations on proselytizing and a lot of similar activities. And the sheer number of hoops that religious groups have to jump through places a pretty heavy burden uh, especially on small religious organizations, which I think makes it difficult, if, if not impossible, to publicly practice um, their religion. And then I think on top of that, you know, it kind of makes matters worse is that although these administrative regulations aren't couched in terms that explicitly exclude certain religions, the ways that we often see these regulations enforced, the government is disproportionately targeting minority religious groups, um, making it very difficult for their adherents. And then you also mentioned their extremism laws. Uh, when it comes to extremism laws and criminal code provisions that are often used in extremism cases, uh, the biggest issue that we've come across in our own work uh, is that these laws and criminal code provisions are generally drafted in very vague terms. And that allows for a lot of discretion in their application. Um, and then we see the government use this vagueness to go after groups essentially it, it doesn't like. So for example, in the WhatsApp case, the government used the crimes of inciting religious discord and the crime of sharing ter terrorist propaganda. For these two crimes, there's very little guidance in the criminal code to narrowly tailor what counts as discord or what counts as propaganda. These vague terms allow the government to prosecute a lot of activity that would normally be protected by the right to freedom of expression, or I guess in this case, the right to freedom of religion. And that's what ha ends up happening to the WhatsApp group members. So if these charges were more narrowly tailored to address extremism cases that pose some imminent risk to public safety, then these charges could be applied, I guess, in a way that would respect human rights and religious freedom. But in Kazakhstan, we find that authorities are using the vagueness in these laws to prosecute groups or individuals that are perceived in any way as threatening institutional hegemony. And a lot of the times the government seems to perceive religious groups in that way, especially small Islamic groups. 
So these laws, whether they be administrative or criminal, they need not be applied in ways that violate people's rights. But when the administrative burden is so grossly disproportionate to the interests served by the regulation, or when these laws are being applied in an arbitrary or discriminatory way, uh, then that's where the government begins violating people's rights to freedom of religion. Adam, speaking of arbitrary uh, that you just mentioned, in October of last year, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary uh, Detention came out with an important opinion, uh, as you know, that found that the government of Kazakhstan had violated the rights of these individuals imprisoned uh, for the WhatsApp case. Can you tell our audience what led to this decision uh, and what impacts has it had? Has, and has the government responded at all to the uh, Working Group's conclusion? Yeah, so the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention decision came about as part of our work at Freedom Now on behalf of the WhatsApp group defendants. Freedom Now represented the members in a case before the working group. Um, and the working group, for those who are unfamiliar, is a United Nations body that has the authority to review cases of arbitrary detention, and then it can issue legal opinions on the cases under international human rights law. So Freedom Now, along with another organization, the Kazakhstan International Bureau for Human Rights, we filed a case together to the working group claiming that the imprisonment of the WhatsApp group members violated their right to freedom of religion and that that violation in turn made their detention arbitrary. And then we also raised some other procedural violations there related to the way the trial was conducted. And then, as you mentioned, the working group issued an opinion on the case last year it held that the government's prosecution and detention of the group members was a violation of the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. And the working group found that they were targeted on the basis of their Muslim faith um, and found that there was no evidence that the messages that they exchanged incited discord or promoted any kind of extremism. So the working group concluded that because of these violations, the men should all be released and have their convictions expunged. Um, this was a pretty big win for us. It showed that the treatment of these men violated Kazakhstan's international human rights obligations, but unfortunately winning the case didn't mean that the men were immediately released. Uh, international opinions like this are often very difficult to enforce. So the next step for us was to engage in advocacy to attempt to get this opinion enforced. And we coordinated with the men's local council to raise opinion and uh, raise the working group's opinion in Kazakh courts. And so far, four of the men have been released and had their sentences commuted, but five of the men still remain in detention, including the group's founder, Bolotbek. So we've seen some positive steps uh, from the government towards compliance, but we're still working to get the opinion fully enforced with respect to the five men still in detention. Well, as you're both aware, uh, there have been several developments re relevant to broader human rights concerns and potential reforms in Kazakhstan that have emerged in recent months. Most notable among them were the events of bloody January earlier this year when the government cracked down on popular protests related to fuel price increases that resulted in more than 200 dead and thousands detained. Uh, since then, the government has sought to reassure the international community uh, that it remains committed to the rule of law, human rights, and additional reforms. Uh, Matthew, let me turn to you. What are some of the ways that these recent events uh, in 2022 have impacted or are likely uh, to impact the situation of religious freedom and, and human rights more broadly in the months to come? Thanks, Dwight. Um, 
for several years, and uh, especially since Kazakhstan's former authoritarian ruler, uh, Nursultan Nazarbayev, uh, left power and, and uh, the now president Takayev assumed power in, in 2019, the government of Kazakhstan has positioned, positioned itself as a reformer, uh, as one that's committed to respecting human rights, uh, international business, um, and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, as you correctly noted, uh, recent events have made this mission even more urgent, uh, given the negative attention that the government has received due to the crackdown um, uh, on peaceful protesters uh, in January 2022, uh, including, uh, I would like to add, uh, the, the accidental shooting by government forces of at least 20 people. Um, so, you know, this crackdown has shocked many people in Kazakhstan, uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, and as has the number of deaths. Uh, uh, right now, around 240 people are officially reported to have uh, died during those events. Uh, and most of those deaths are still largely unexplained. Um, but, uh, you know, despite uh, being shocking, uh, this, uh, the development of events uh, can also be viewed as largely consistent with how the Kazakhstani government has acted for many years. Um, and actually in 2011, there was a similar set of incidents sparked by a peaceful protest and resulting in a crackdown in which civilians were killed uh, and no one was held accountable for those deaths. Um, and in addition to the deaths in January, uh, thousands uh, were detained, many of them uh, peaceful protesters uh, and accused of a variety of crimes. Uh, and hundreds of them have lodged claims um, about being tortured or otherwise abused while, while being detained. Uh, the government's response to the January protests was replete with dark rhetoric claiming that terrorists and extremists were behind the anti-government protests and the violence uh, without providing any evidence uh, that, that that's actually the case uh, in an apparent effort to scare people, uh, blunt criticism of its actions. Uh, and this is, you know, to a certain degree, the same kind of rhetoric that we see uh, uh, used in cases like uh, the WhatsApp case that we've been talking about. Um, and so this is actually sort of largely par for the course in, in Kazakhstan and the use of, uh, you know, the threat of extremism uh, as a way to uh, blunt criticism of, of, of its actions. Um, but it doesn't look like the government plans to dramatically change its approach to human rights um, after the January events. Uh, in speeches since then, uh, there have been promises to liberalize the political system to focus on bread and butter social rights issues, uh, on, on equality, jobs, and, and things of that sort. Uh, and of course, you know, these are great and, and very, very much uh, in demand uh, and respond to the needs of, of uh, many Kazakhstani people. Um, but uh, when it comes to decreasing the level of political repression, um, including persecuting uh, religious believers and the abusive use of anti-extremism, uh, legislation, there does not seem to be a course correction. Um, the government has already pushed through constitutional reform uh, and is planning another round of constitutional reform, uh, though neither of those will fundamentally change its authoritarian approach to governance. Uh, and and neither neither of them was was uh, uh, you know so far anyway has uh, been pulled together in sort of a democratic and inclusive way. And so uh, when the first round of reforms uh, went through, uh, most people actually didn't know um, the substance of, of those reforms. Um, there's been very little progress on basic civil and political liberties issues since the January events. Uh, and in fact, the government appears to be digging in. Um, the government made it easy, 
easier in theory to start a political party, uh, yet none have been able to register despite uh, numerous efforts to do so. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any movement on reforming the law and peaceful assemblies, which is not consistent with international standards. Uh, it makes it basically impossible to organize an assembly not supported by the local authorities. Um, the restrictive framework when it comes to religious belief is also completely intact. Uh, and as you noted, there have been uh, reforms uh, within the last year, or sorry, changes within the last year that uh, may uh, may not improve the situation. Uh, you know, religious communities of worship have to be registered by government, participate in uh, support for uh, leadership of an unregistered or banned religious community, uh, carries happy fines, and people who refuse to pay the fines are often banned from travel. Uh, people released from prison after serving time for religious crimes uh, also have uh, experienced lots of problems, uh, including for example, inability to access some basic services like bank uh, banking services and other limitations. And so, you know, unfortunately, we don't see uh, any signs that uh, much of this is going to change in the, in the near future. Well, what I'm hearing is, is uh, that there's not a lot of positive movement, despite the government, uh, you know, wanting to and expressing explicit interest in undergoing reforms. What can you tell me in terms of uh, recommendations for the U.S. government and the wider international community, both in terms of advocacy for the remaining five men in prison relating to this WhatsApp case, and, and more generally to promote greater uh, respect for freedom of religion and belief and other fundamental uh, freedoms in Kazakhstan? So uh, our experience shows that uh, attention to cases uh, like the, the, the WhatsApp case uh, and the individuals uh, implicated in that case uh, from the US government and other governments, uh, from international organizations uh, that are you know, concerned about religious freedom uh, and also political imprisonment can make a real difference. Uh, this includes uh, both you know, potentially improving the conditions of their detention uh, and also contributing to, to their early, early release. And Adam mentioned um, some of the actions that have been taken by local council uh, that has uh, contributed to their early release uh, of some of the members of this group. And I know that uh, their cases have been raised also by, by diplomats. Um, but, you know, in fact, uh, UN bodies like the Working Group on Arbitra Arbitrary Detention that Adam mentioned and others have issued dozens of decisions uh, finding violations of human rights by Kazakhstan uh, and uh, with the government refusing to implement a vast majority of them despite uh, you know uh, legal obligations to do so. So certainly uh, you know pressure on Kazakhstan to uh, to release uh, religious prisoners to release political prisoners to implement the decisions by uh, the authoritarian uh, sorry authoritative UN bodies uh, is a good start. Um, and uh, you know, on behalf by, by the Kazakhs, uh, actual releases of individuals uh, who uh, whose detention has been ruled illegal or whose rights have otherwise been deemed violated would be meaningful progress in that area. Um, we encourage more bilateral dialogues on these issues. Uh, so you know, U.S. Kazakhstan, uh, but also for them to be raised publicly, since uh, behind closed doors advocacy lets the public narratives that the Kazakhstani government is sharing about reforms about respect for human rights and dignity go essentially unchallenged. Um, and we believe that there should be a public component to, to this kind of advocacy. Uh, in 2020, 
several senators sent letters to the uh, Central Asian presidents, uh, President Takayev included, uh, urging them to release unjustly detained people. Uh, and many of them were in fact released uh, earlier than anticipated or than their, their uh, original terms. Uh, we also see that the Kazakh authorities respond to statements and resolutions made by the European Parliament and other institutions, um, and that they are uh, in fact uh, uh, concerned uh, about the actions uh, by uh, Congress, by European policymakers. I mean, you know, one, one, uh, one way we can tell that they're concerned about these things is the fact that uh, the Kazakhstani government is spending $300,000 a month in retainers for lobbyists in Washington, D.C., uh, according to uh, the Department of Justice uh, FARA unit. Um, and we know similar activities are happening elsewhere. Um, you know, public dialogue on uh, religious freedom and rights issues uh, produces results. And we think it's important for lawmakers, uh, policymakers, and other people in Kazakhstan to hear about these concerns that international bodies and other governments have. Uh, as well as uh, uh, what needs to be done in order to bring the laws uh, and policies into compliance with, uh, with the country's international human rights obligations. Uh, certainly the laws on extremism, uh, on religious materials, regulating religious communities and their practices uh, are highly pro problematic, uh, but the same goes for many other areas. Um, and so Freedom Now, uh, for example, has highlighted uh, regulation of political parties, uh, several criminal code articles, including uh, on incitement. So uh, this is one of the criminal code articles used against uh, some of the participants in the WhatsApp case um, and dissemination of false information as well. Uh, and also laws and regulations on peaceful assemblies. Uh, these are you know, some areas where we see urgent reform as, as necessary. Um, another area where we encourage Kazakhstan's international partners to get involved is rehabilitation and reparations of former political prisoners and prisoners of conscience. Uh, even in cases when people are released early, there's oftentimes a long hangover from their imprisonment um, during which, um, uh, you know, during their imprisonment, they may have experienced uh, physical or emotional abuse. Um, but after they're released, uh, they have uh, they might have limitations on using banking services, uh, on traveling abroad, uh, or on other sort of common normal life things. Um, uh, and uh, you know, being on a list of extremists is also uh, uh, you know something that uh, is commonly applied to uh, people after they're released, making it difficult for them to reintegrate into society. Uh, and uh, you know, certainly it doesn't make it easier for them to achieve uh, justice for the rights violations that have been perpetrated against them. And so we encourage governments to raise these these issues. Uh, and in particular, for the Kazakhstani government to take steps to to ease uh, integration. Uh, back into society. Uh, and then the last uh, sort of point I would want to make is that uh, the US and others need to keep supporting Kazakhstani civil society, which is really doing an amazing job in a, in a very difficult environment. And any resolution to the issues that we've been talking about is necessarily going to go through the local civil society, which knows the players, knows the issues, and how to address them better than anyone. And so uh, really uh, keeping that uh, support uh, going, both political, financial, and otherwise, and ensuring that the society is, is vibrant and active uh, is, uh, is another uh, recommendation that, that we would want to share. And we'll have to leave it uh, right here. I'd like to thank uh, Matthew Schaff and Adam Ledmott from Freedom Now for taking the time to join us 
today and share more about the situation of these five individuals uh, from the WhatsApp case uh, who remain unjustly imprisoned in Kazakhstan. You can find this year's USURF annual report chapter on Kazakhstan and our recommendations for U.S. policy on our website. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USURF Spotlight. To learn more about USURF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USURF Spotlight.